Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's Af Malhotra again here on Straight Talk with Af. Now, as I say to you, you know, I'm in the habit of trying to please you and not disappoint you. And once again, I have a fantastic guest on my show, an author, once again, and an author who's, um, you know, I feel is a, a student of, and maybe even getting to mastery level of history, tech, technical technology related history of people, of events, almost a, a, I would say, a theologist of the 21st century, but with, with technology uh, as the cornerstone of his thesis. And I was privileged to you know, receive a book, a signed book uh, from this individual uh, that I haven't finished yet, but scanned through. And just scanning through the book has been a history lesson for me. I'm a student of history. I love history. And I've studied people that I read about today, and I've been studying, but you know, more superficially, like Elon Musk, like uh, Peter Thiel, um, like Max Levchin, uh, in fact, like even a gentleman called Bill Fraser, because if he watches this show, he will know that serendipitously um, he's in the book and there's a whole chapter on the Fraser's and uh, Bill is a dear friend of mine. So it's all just incredible and how G Jimmy has contacted me and how this has happened. So um, Jimmy Sonny, welcome to Straight Talk with Af. What a pleasure to have you and what a pleasure to have you share this brilliant book, The Founders, with me and I have to lift it up here. Here's the book, The Founders, and a quick sales plugin. Go on Amazon, type in The Founders. It is a history book. It's 496 pages of history on some of these great people and startup founders who've built some of the most incredible companies, disruptive companies on the planet. It was launched in or released in 2022, so 2022. And it is, um, it really is eye-opening at so many levels, but I'm not the one who's going to uh, inspire you around this. It's going to be Jimmy. So, Jimmy, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you for for having me. That was a great that was a great intro. I think I think if my if my seven year old ever gets sort of snippy with me, I'm going to look at her and I'm going to say, "Listen, I'm in the business of pleasing you, not disappointing you." <laughs> that's going to be my <laughs> that's going to be my tagline with her now. It's going to be like, "Listen, I just I want you to know what business I'm in. That's the business I'm in." And you should, and of course, you should say, I'm a technology historian. Right, right, right. Exactly. There's a difference. There is right. a difference. And I happen to be that an will, author. Yeah, that will, that will, that will uh, yield a, 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 a polite sh shrugging of the shoulders from her, I think. Uh, that's about all I'll get for that. It's like you just said to me, PayPal was in the business of, you know, security. Right. Payments were just a byproduct. So right. it's the same thing. So yeah, exactly. um, great to have you on the show. There's so much we need to discuss, um, but I'd like to stay with this whole idea of this being a journal and, uh, you know, you've been a journalist sort of building this journal over six years, I believe, which is mm -hmm. just insane. The, the, the dedication and commitment that you've put towards this, I'm, you know, really inspired by and admire anyone who can dedicate six years of their lives to something to the extent that I believe someone you interviewed said, Hey man, six years, I would have built and, and sold my startup by then. And you, you know, you just finished your book, but actually this is a startup, isn't it? Really? Your book is actually a startup uh, outside of the unit economics, which we know is a bit different when you're trying to sell books, but right. um, uh, tell me about how this whole thing started. But firstly, before we get into the book, Tell me a bit about you. So who is Jimmy Sonny? What's the story here? You know, where are you from? What's your storyboard? What's your narrative? Because then we'll truly appreciate why 
the journalist in you and the th- theologist was born. Yeah, no, I that's a that's a great place to start. I, you know, it, the funny thing about authors is that there are probably a group of authors where you know the author is the story. For the kind of writing I do, I'm like sort of behind the camera. You know, I'm not kind of I don't introduce myself into stories. I don't break the fourth wall, so to speak. Um, I was actually born in France, and my parents were born in India in Rajasthan. Uh, mom is from Jaipur. My dad's from Udaipur. My dad was doing his postdoc in France. And I just happened to be born there, spoke French for a few years. And then my dad was like, hey, we, we're going to go to the States for a little while. There was sort of the expectation was like, oh, it's just a, like a little little stop before we get back to America, uh, before yeah. we get back to India. So we go to the States, we move to the Midwest and, you know, whatever that that few years jaunt turned into 30 plus years of being there. Right. So mm-hmm. as these things go. Um, and so for me, it was funny as I think about it now. English was was my third language because I learned French first, then Hindi or sort of French and Hindi at the same time, because that's what my parents right. spoke and then learned English when I got to school. And, you know, I guess something happened, like something clicked because part of what happened is that as a kid, I just grew up like loving books and reading. I mean, it was like basically like what I did in my spare time when I wasn't with friends or wasn't in school. I was reading and playing video games, but like we'll leave that to the side. Um, so I was like I just read a lot. I grew to really just be fond of certain authors, certain styles of storytelling. And I think, you know, you sort of are drawn to different things. So I would write for the school paper, like write for different publications, and then just got started on this kind of historian jag. Like I just was like, okay, let me just see if I could do a book, then did one, then did the next, then did the next. And this is my fourth one. Wow. And it was one of these things that like, you know, you can't, it's sort of tough to like, if you look back at it, you're like, it was, it's, it, most authors will say they kind of fell into their profession. They're not doing that out of false modesty. They're doing it because it's the truth. Like you, mm-hmm. you write a proposal. If someone bought this is back in the day, it's not as true now, mm-hmm. but if you, if someone buys it, you write the book, then you try to do another one. And there's not, you know, unless you're in a very specific kind of genre, that's kind of how it goes. You put mm-hmm. bait into the water, you see if someone buys the idea, and then you go off and you pursue the idea. And sometimes when you put the bait into the water, you don't actually know if it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it does. So for me, part of what what your description of the process is like, where you said a book is like a startup, you know, I would say there's a lot of things that are like a, like a podcast is like a startup, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you started this, you were, you didn't know if it was going to work. You sort of didn't know if it was going to come together. Are people going to tell you no a million times? Mm-hmm. You know, is anybody going to pay attention? And now you've got thousands of people paying attention. Mm-hmm. In the same way, a book is kind of a bet on the future. It's a bet that people three or four or five or six years from now are going to want to read about this thing and that they're going to want to give me an, give me their limited attention for a number of hours, like for me to walk them through the story. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so that's like, it's the, it's a book as a startup is like the best, one of the best descriptions, I think, because it really is. It says that, and I would say also psychologically, same uncertainty, right. Same, like very high degree of failure. Same thing of like a lot of people say they want to do startups. A lot of people say they want to write books. Right. Um, you're generally underfunded, like unless you're, you know, Prince yeah. Harry or Barack yeah. Obama, like you, yeah. you're not going to get a lot of money for this. Yeah. And and you still ultimately, and I, I think this is sort of comes through when you were in the startup world, you know, this, it, there is a kind of, there's a part of it that goes beyond the project or the economics or the trappings. Like it, it really does come down to, do you care enough in this thing yeah. to endure all of that, to actually like put this thing on paper? Yeah. Um and so that's that's a little bit of a, kind of my history blended with some of the thoughts about about like book writing. I would say that 
the nice thing, the one nice thing about books, this is many nice things, but the one nice thing that I always come back to is there's a quality of like, if, if you didn't do the thing, then it wouldn't get done. Right. So like, I like that. I like the, the kind of aspect of it where there was no book. I put in years of effort and now there is a book. There's a kind of, there's a sort of finality, a kind of like longevity to that. That really appeals to me. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think one of the things, if I may just touch on the way you described your journey is that um, you've done this four times and that's pretty cool. In the startup world, you know, sometimes startups come about and then they die. I mean, there's a 80, 90% failure rate on startups. And, you know, again, failure doesn't really, it, it depends on which part of the world you use that word. It actually is a fantastic way of evolving. It's a part of evolution. Forget about learning, that's kind of default now, but it's a form of evolution and a form of human development to not get it right the first time. As as counterintuitive as that might sound to the business leaders out there, especially those who were business leaders 15 years ago, that getting it right the first time is kind of the opposite of disruptive progress and innovation. And let's segue into your book now. Because this is what this whole journal, I mean, mean, I'm calling it a book. This is what this history book is all about. I'm going to force you to call this a history book by the time I'm done with this show, because I think think think, that's right. Yeah, I think it's a history book. It's not just, you know, I authored a book because you're doing it, um, you're underserving the effort you've put in. And of course, the chronological events that you've listed out and the people and the meetings and God knows how many emails you've been through and email trails and that you've really done a journalistic job where to the extent that I think like this is a Netflix documentary, right? Um, Definitely narrated by you. So tell me why you decided to write this, why this book in particular? Yeah. And I, and it's, I mean, there's so many things you said that resonate a lot. So I'm I'm excited to dive into all of them. What I would say is just like there's an 80 or 90% failure rate in startups. I would, I don't know if the, what, the, what the rate is with books, but it's probably close. I mean, there's just a lot of book projects that go unfinished or unpublished yeah. or yeah. wither on the vine somehow. For me with this one, it's actually funny. Now that I think back on it, it's the story. It's a story born out of failure. And here was the failure. I had written a book about Claude Shannon, who's an information theorist, a big scientific mind in the 20th century. He worked at Bell Labs. And for my next book, I wanted to do something where if I said the name, people would kind of recognize it. So I started a proposal for a biography of Bruce Lee. And I got it into my head that like somebody, like, because I thought my thesis then is is still remains true. He's a much more consequential figure than just, you know, quote unquote, the martial arts guy, or Mm. like this guy who did action movies. He he wrote poetry. He was really thoughtful. He also died very, very young. So the story Mm. has tragedy in it. You know, it's just like this amazing life story. And he really paved the way for Asian Americans in, in Hollywood. Like the biggest thing, he was sort of like Jackie Robinson. Like he, Mm. he blazed a trail that today, like it's plenty of people who are, you know, Asian American or South Asian American who are in film and TV. But Bruce Lee was one of the first and he was one of the first consequential figures. So I had this whole pitch. I like wrote a lot about it. I wrote like 50 pages, read all the books. And my publisher comes to me and says, hey, listen, like we look, we love you as a writer, but we have this person who's not satisfied with their publisher. They want to sell us his Bruce Lee biography. And we we are like really interested, but we don't want to, you know, kind of 
we don't want to take it away from you or like not mm. have you do it. What do you think? And I said, I like looked at the guy's bio and I looked at his other writing. And I was like, look, he's probably, he like was a martial artist who spoke Mandarin and stuff. I was oh, like, this guy should do this. <laughs> so I, I basically went, did all this work and then it failed. I mean, you quote mm. unquote failed, right? How long, how long did you spend doing that then? Oh, I mean, it wasn't super, it was like two months maybe okay. of just like reading and writing and research and whatever, and trying to position the the, the whole idea. Mm. And so then I, I, I like look back, I'm like, oh man, like I lost all this time, but I had been noodling on this other concept about what are clusters of talent? What are not like individuals who are amazing, but groups that just like go on to do incredible things. Mm. Mm. And in Silicon Valley history, there's a few of these. One is Fairchild Semiconductor. Another is Xerox Park. Mm. Um, you know, and there's a few, there's, and then another constellation or cluster is the PayPal mafia. They're known today at the PayPal mafia, but let's just say the PayPal alumni. And I just realized like nobody had really done an exhaustive look at this group. And the group includes people that like are covered every day, like Elon Musk, computer, you know, it's like people who are in the news all the time. So it was just, I just, it was like a market dislocation. You're like, wait, somebody should have done this. Like, why didn't anybody do it? It makes no sense. So that's what started it is that after that, I said, look, somebody should do this. And then I was like, do I want to spend years of my life doing this? And I was like, that'd be amazing. Like if I could do it, it'd be amazing. And so then I reached out through a friend to Peter Thiel because he was the CEO CEO when the company went public. He was one of the earliest investors in the company, even in its first stages. And he was kind of connected to everybody else within this universe. And I was like, look, probably the, the person who... If he says yes, it'll go the furthest. Is him like if he if he agrees and he thinks this is interesting, it's a great idea. And he's the kind of person that he's pitched ideas all the time. So if he thinks it's stupid, that actually counts for something. Like does, if he yeah. says, "Hey, this is like super boring. I wouldn't read this book." I'd yeah. be then I, then you'd have a very thoughtful person saying like, "Nah, you need to dispense with that. Like, don't do that." Yeah. And so he got excited about it, and he said, "You know, I like he he actually said he's like." at one point in my life, like I nursed the ambition to do this book. Like I wanted to write this book because I thought what we experienced in PayPal was, you know, unique, but he said, look, I have a lot of other things going on. I'm not going to do it. So you should do it. And I'm like, happy to help. And that was it. That was what got the rock rolling down the hill. Mm, wow. And uh, that's a beautiful explanation. And I like the Bruce Lee story. I'll remember that because I'm a big fan of Bruce Lee as well. Um, it took you six years to write this, correct? All right. Yes. End and, to end. End to end. Okay. And b- when you were writing it, and I just want to figure out your state of mind because it's quite it's quite important. You know, we, we'll jump to these characters. But when you're writing a book like a startup, like say you're the founder of the book, the book is called The Founders, but you're the founder of the book because you wrote it. Then you have up days, down days. Sometimes you can't be bothered to write. Writer's block. You, life throws all sorts of curveballs and so on and so forth. Uh, what sort of state of mind did you try and maintain frequency, behaviors, habits, to stay committed to a consistent um, level of frequency so you can write a book in a consistent way, you know, excluding editing, forget the editors for a moment. Tell me a bit about what was going on in your head through this journey. Yeah. And I, it's a great question. And honestly, like I have so much to say about it. So I'm going to try to keep my remarks no, keep relatively going. brief. Keep going. What, what I would say is, um, it, you know, it's a, there's a tendency to think of the writing process as like creativity, right? With a capital C, like you sit around and you think thoughts and like it happens and then you put stuff down on paper. It's much more like distance running or like training for some kind of marathon or like a long distance event, which is you don't really, 
like most of the work before a book comes out is pretty unglamorous, but it's the day-to-day discipline that matters a lot. So for, and this this is, by the way, it's like all personal. Like I'm sure there are some people who can just like put words on a page and it's brilliant. That's not me. It takes time. Mm -hmm. For me, what I did was I would get up just very, very early every single day. So it was a sort of a seven day a week project. And I would just wake up and I had some, let's say specific either chapter goal or word count goal or something that day. Mm And I would just drive to that. And so part of, I mean, I'm, I'm compressing like a massive process mm, into small no, bits and pieces, yeah. but let me, I'll give you two examples. One is what I would do on my Google calendar is that any day where like, or, or any Friday in over, like, let's say from 2019 to 2021, you could, if you looked on a Friday, see a number and it was in bright red. So you might've seen like the number 14. And that meant that that Friday for me was my internal deadline to finish chapter 14 and move on to the next chapter. Right. And it was like, and I would just see it every, like when I'd wake up, it's like, see it and I'd see it. And it was just there sort of like burning a hole in my brain. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that kept me kind of on schedule and progressing as opposed to just like revising chapters over and over again. Mm. That's kind of one example of, I just set consistent deadlines for myself that I would meet because it's a mm. big project, a lot of words. The mm. other thing is more interesting, which is when I was writing this book, I had to sit down with a lot of the people who worked there. I mean, I did 300 interviews for this book, right? I mean, I did a lot of work to just understand what was going on. And part of that is like, you're only going to get that number of interviews if you reach out to more than that number of people. Correct. And so part of what I would do is like almost every day I had sort of a spreadsheet of names and the goal, like it was annoying, but it was like, the goal was like five notes, five notes, like every day or 10 notes, Mm. whatever the number was. And I would highlight the names in green as Mm. I moved along. Mm. And it was like, just send the note. And Mm. then it was like, just keep going. And so I would, that also made it so that over 30 days, I could reach out to 150 people and and see what the hit rate was, like figure out like, okay, when should I schedule time? If I'm flying out to the West Coast, this is before COVID to do the meetings in person. Can I batch some of the meetings together? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that like each day, because I was working while writing this book, I just tried to bite off as much as I could in a given, let's say three or four hour chunk and then move on to other work. And that made it way less like intimidating. It also keeps you motivated because wins happen, right? You write an email and somebody reaches back out and you're like, boom, I got Mm. it. This is so great. Or you finish a chapter and my, my celebration, like again, air quotes here, but my celebration was that I would take the Google Doc link for a chapter and I would copy and paste it into a spreadsheet that just had like the chapter numbers, but it was the most satisfying <laughs> feeling to copy and paste that link. Over. Like, I can't even, like no drug comes close. Like, I was like, oh man, this is the best. And so I'd copy and paste it. And as I start, started to see it fill up, that was where the real, mm. like I was like, wow, like I've done something like there's a book mm. now. Mm. And it was, by the way, there were dark days. There were like, we had a global pandemic in the middle. I had a young mm. kid, a lot of like health stuff work, you know, all sorts of mm. life happens. Right. Mm. But what I found is that capturing the early morning time mm. and consistently applying it over several years, mm. you, you get a book at the end, not by, mm. you know, not by accident, but by sort of deliberate effort. Mm. Beautiful. So many amazing nuggets. I'm I'm loving it because everything you've just said is is translatable to everything in our lives where whether you want to lose you know x pounds or you want to build a startup or you want to spend more time with your family or what, whatever you end up doing you need some form of a discipline some practice some ritual 
And you've articulated that beautifully. Actually, I've taken a few tips away as I think about my book at some point. Uh, I'm definitely going to come to you for some mentorship. By the um, way, let me, I'll throw one more in here because yeah. it's a fun one. This is a yeah. fun one. Go there on. was a time when I was really paralyzed by this project. I mean, just to be, you know, I feel like we can speak <clears throat> candidly and yeah. maybe listeners will appreciate this. Like, I also think creative people and people who do any kind of creative work should talk about the tough stuff. Like, it's like, there's like times when you, li- like, I'll give you, I saved the money that the publisher gave me in like a separate account in case the project fell apart so that I could return it. Um, like that's how like uncertain I felt about this for many, many years, Mm -hmm. but there was a point of particular paralysis. I think it was like 2018 or something where I was just like, not part of it is like, I was not being accountable to myself, but I was just like, I was in my head, the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. I had this coach that I was working with. It was amazing coach. And she did had me do this exercise. It's kind of funny to admit this, but her, her thing was, she was like, look, here's what I want you to do. You have to send me a thousand words every day. And if you don't, she made me like, it was like, I'd have to like give money to a charity whose values I totally disagree with or something like that was the penalty. And so the idea was like, there was a real punishment here if I didn't deliver. Yeah. And I wrote a thousand words every day. I mean, like it was like clockwork. Like I was like on it. Cause there was just no way I was going to give money to this particular group. Right. And so it was crazy, but it was so effective by the end of a hundred days, I had a hundred thousand words on paper. Right. Wow. And more importantly, I'd overcome the inertia. I'd overcome the yeah. kind of paralysis. Yeah, so you, you, what I would say is like, there's not one process and it's not always clean, right? I could say like, yes, I got up super early. Yeah, I did. A lot of people get up early, right? It was a mix of tricks and techniques mm. to get out of my own way sometimes, mm. right? Like, let me, oh, here, here's another one. Here's another good one. Just, and this is the last one that we can move on to another question. No, keep going. But keep going. This is brilliant. Sometimes when you get writer's block, part of what our our computer, like our computers do to us is they plague us because you can always press like, you know, command T or like open up a new tab and like go to Reddit or go to email or do something that feels Mm -hmm. productive or researchy, but you're not Mm -hmm. actually doing the work you need to do. Right. It's much harder to do that on phones. If you turn off all your notification on phones and you open up Google docs on your phone and you take your phone to like a park or something, I found for me, writing on Google Docs on a phone was in some ways less distracting than writing on a computer because you actually have to physically move your app to something else on a phone. You can't have three windows open on a phone, right? And so I'm like sitting there and like just that little bit of a barrier, like just a little bit of resistance where it's like, if you're going to open up Gmail, you have to close out of Google Docs. Like that's great. You know, I found that that worked. And so I found these techniques over the course of these six years. But I only say this because there's probably some listener that has just what I had, which is like, you just face walls or hurdles or psychological barriers. And I would say like, you could just like, there's little tricks you can do to get around those that it's, it might feel stupid to you, but they're, they're scarily effective if you do them over a long enough period of time. Yeah. Well, one of the most important things about what you've just said, of course, as I try and help other people understand why this is relevant, it's not just about writing books. So this is not some, you know, clickbait, learn how to write books in five steps nonsense, right? This is your, what you're basically talking about is human behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. And you're talking about human psychology and it applies to every situation in life, especially when it's sort of objective or goal-driven or some sort of a breakthrough or mission that you're on. And I love the fact about, just if I may, the prospecting. When he talks mm-hmm. about, you know, the list of people and you, you, you sent five notes a day and how you multiply 150 in a month. You know, and, you've got, and literally it's the discipline of doing it, but that's called prospecting in sales. Right. 
Right. That's prospecting. And so yeah. until and unless you do that, you won't get a breakthrough. And surprise, surprise, when you do it, you get a breakthrough, right? Yeah. Uh, because you just drop someone a note and yeah, maybe 10 out of 15 will say no, but the five might come back and say, hey, and two might say, yes, absolutely. But if you hadn't taken that action in the first place, you wouldn't have got the breakthrough. And so when people think it's not possible, it's not going to happen, I'm not going to raise the money, no one's going to read my book, no one's going to uh, get, get on my show, get on my show, because by the way, I do the same thing. I prospect. Right. I prospect. Right. Yes. And after, after I ran out, out of my Rolodex, which was like year two, right? Um, I was like, shit, who am I going to invite now? And then it was hardcore prospecting. And that's yep. all we do. And so bang on. Now, let's move on to the book because a lot of these practices, I am sure these founders that you've studied over yeah. the course of the last six years probably do anyway to become the people that they are. Uh, now, I don't want to obsess on any particular founder, but of course, it's so hard not to talk about Elon Musk because he's a fascinating guy. And you've talked about his journey. And I, I won't ask you to spend too much time on it, but I think just for those to entice those to pick up the book, maybe you could just give a bit of a, a short history of, okay, so this guy, Elon Musk, he didn't start yesterday. This guy's been floating around since the 80s, and he was an immigrant to the United States from South Africa. So we Most people know that, but that's where it sort of stops. So help us understand the quick sort of chronological series of events. I'm sure you've got this like, you know, ingrained in your head. Um, as to how did this guy start and how has he ended up here? And then we can dig into that a little bit more. And I have so many more questions about him and the way he thinks. Because yeah. I know you've interviewed him, right? Yeah, you, no, and, and yeah. a couple of interviews, a yeah. few interactions and interviews and different things that we did to get the material for the book. Um, what, what I would say is this, you know, that before, so like, it's really important that even the way you framed it is really important, which is the following. For anybody listening who is reading an article about Elon or watching something about Elon, let's say this week, like, you know, April 3rd through 10th or whatever, yeah, yeah. you are likely reading about something that has happened in the year 2023 or late 2022. And so you're reading about a very, very short snapshot of a life that is now over five decades old mm. that encompasses many, many companies, pursuits, ambitions, other things. And so what I would what I would say is like, just remember that anything that you're reading about him now is a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of a very long life, right? Why is that perspective important? Because my book doesn't cover anything he did in the last five years. I look at Elon from basically the age of around like 10, 12-ish to around like late 20s. What I focus on particularly is his earliest startup, which was called Zip2. And his decisions around like doing a startup instead of going to grad school. And I interviewed some early mentors of his. And then after that, I focused on this time when he was co-creating this company, PayPal. And I that that, that is like, like, you know, I could go through the sort of nuggets of his life. But basically, the stretch that I'm looking at is this, I mean, he's a kid back then. He's in his like teens. He leaves South Africa. He comes to the Queen's University in Ontario and does two years in Canada for school then transfers to the University of Pennsylvania for his junior and senior year. And then at that point, like a lot of students, he's faced with this challenge. He's like, here's the challenge. He applies and gets admitted to Stanford Graduate School mm. for material science and engineering. He is looking at startups 
because he's like, huh, like he sort of thinks to himself, like the, the, you know, the Netscape's gone public. All these startups are crazy successful. He's like, I could do that. They're no smarter than I am. Yeah. And then he's also thinking like, well, what if I just join a company? Like I could join a company like Netscape or I could join a company, you know, that I just apply for a job. Maybe I'll learn something, make some money, et cetera. So he has these options before him. And I kind of start right then, like, who is this person? What are the internships that he did? Why did he do the things that he has done? What was he like when he was a kid? And so that's kind of the the narrative. And then I follow him all the way through this kind of unceremonious moment in his life when he gets kicked out of PayPal, his own mm-hmm. sort of senior officers throw him out of the company. Uh, I say unceremonious because they they started to take the action while he was on his honeymoon with mm-hmm. his like new wife. And it it is a very painful moment. And then it's in the immediate aftermath of that that a few other painful things happen to him. And then he goes on and starts SpaceX. But the, again, the period that I'm focused in on really is like 1998 to 2002 with a little bit of veering into his like child, like his, his sort of young adulthood, just so readers understand like this person wasn't like born in a startup, you know, they, they weren't like, he didn't emerge and like have a deck to raise a series A. <laughs> like it, this is a human being who in many ways faced the same decisions that a lot of college graduates do. Like, what am I going to do? Like, and how do I want to do it? You know, and like, what am I interested in? He's asking exactly those questions. Now he has IQ points to spare. He has a lot of drive, like a lot of discipline. But when he's 18, 19, 20 years old, like in in some ways, it's like he is he is like a lot of these, a lot of other students who are making these same choices. And that's where I thought it was proper to begin the story of his time at PayPal was when he was deciding whether to do his first startup, go to grad school or get a job. Mm. So- he started off, you know, in this new world, which was at that point Canada, and then he moves to the United States at some point. When, when did he move to the States and why? He transfers to the University of Pennsylvania to go to Wharton Business School, um, not not the graduate school, but to finish up his undergrad degree at, Pencil, at, at UPenn. Right. And that's when he arrives in the United States. And the important thing there is actually not even necessarily the University of Pennsylvania, right. it, that he has an opportunity then to go west to Silicon Valley. So he does internships in Silicon Valley. And it's his first exposure to technology. He's always had a passion for technology. He, he and his family were one of the first to have like a, a really primitive computer. He wrote really primitive computer code. He was always been a, somebody who plays video games. So the computing and tech were kind of always around. Mm-hmm. But the move to Silicon Valley is, and his internships there, are what expose him to Silicon Valley culture. And this is happening, like the timing of this is unbelievable, right? So he he goes there and it's just around that time. Netscape goes public, Amazon.com bursts onto the scene, Yahoo, Google, they're all being made right around that time. So mm. you have this young, very ambitious person who loves technology and he is seeing the explosion happen. And his line about it that, you know, he said to me, it said in a few other places, is like, I could either like be in grad school and watch this happen and be really frustrated that I wasn't a part of it. Or, <laughs> Or I could like defer graduate school, do my startup and then come back. And actually one of his mentors gives him that exact advice. He says, Mm. Elon, like this is a rocket, like it's leaving. You should do this. You can always come back to grad school. And the interesting Mm. thing is the mentor had a PhD, right? So it wasn't like the mentor was some like entrepreneurial wizard. It was just somebody who had done a lot of careful study and had got and earned a graduate degree and was telling Elon, like, look, you could wait on grad school, Mm. go do this internet Mm. thing. 
Mm, beautiful. That's what a great lesson there, you know, because you have to listen to your intuition and the gut and the calling, which is, ah, I'm going to be frustrated if I'm here and look at the world moving on. I need to be out there. And I think that's a very important lesson for us, for all of us and the next few generations to come, where if you feel that there is some sort of an energy shouting out and it, it needs you to do something different, but you're going against the grain, you've got to listen. And you've got to follow that flow. And of course, like you can always go back. Life mm -hmm. isn't, it, it, you know, things don't just pass and you can never, you know, ever resurrect them or come back to them. That's sort of the, the, the confusion and almost the incorrect information we've been fed for a long time where, oh, well, well this is your time to do a degree. No degree, mm -hmm. then that's the end of your life. You know, nonsense. Right. And Elon is a great example of that. And so as you were studying him, then you found this guy a fascinating chap. And so tell me about this guy's mindset. And mm -hmm. of course, he's, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to use the right word. He's awkward in many ways, okay, when you see him uh, compared to a lot of other people. Let's say he's an outlier. We accept he's an outlier. So his behavior, the way he responds to questions, the way he thinks, the way his eyes move. Uh, I remember you saying in one of your talk shows, you know, press pause and you'll see he's got a little glint in his eyes about to burst into a joke and so on. I'm sure there, there's a, that side to him that he's trying to hold back. Uh, and he's also obsessive, right, about mm -hmm. the things that he's doing. Now, he's gone from startups and the internet now into space travel. It's pretty right. ludicrous in the grand scheme of things. And there's no doubt in my mind, you know, I joke with a lot of my fraternity that he's had a download from somewhere, right? He's not, he's not just another founder. There are many founders out there, let's be honest, okay? And you could have studied another 50, 50 of them. But this particular founder is, is an, has an X factor, a very, very serious X factor, and so we joke with our friends that he's had, a, you know, like one of the spiritual gurus or yogi. He's had an awakening. <laughs> you know, he went to the top of a mountain, I don't know, somewhere. And he's had an awakening or he's taken something that we don't know. And he's had a download because oh, it's funny. insane. It's insane how he's able to compute and just flip fields. I mean, this is not, it's not a joke, like building cars. Right. Auto, right. He's going into the automotive sector where you've got Ford and GM who've been there for like, you know, God knows, 200 years or whatever it is. And then he just says, now nah, just sort of go into NASA's world for a bit. And so it takes some serious ambidexterity. And of course, much more than hum the human mind can understand it. And maybe he is elevated to a level that many people are, but he's deploying it in this commercial environment that is the startup environment. But tell me, um, firstly, my first part of my question is, could you describe him in five words if I force you? You, just you, for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, look, like I'll I'll come up with the five. I mean, we didn't practice this or anything, so you know, I would say, you know, it's funny. Every word I'm thinking about, as I say, as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh, this is totally going to understate the case, right? But if yeah. I were thinking about five, here here are the five: it's endurance, okay, depth, depth, yeah, creativity. Okay. Monomaniacal. Wow. Okay. And this is going to be two words, but you just forgive me. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like impossibly ambitious. Um, <laughs> and I, I would say, but, but let me, let me sort of provide a little bit of a wrapper around yeah. that. Yeah. Right. Because I, 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 I would, I would say that, that one thing that's interesting about him relative to some of the other people that I have studied throughout history or throughout kind of the course of this project and others is when he was in his teen years, 
he knew that he wanted to be a part of three things. When he was in college, he'd right. sort of made his mind up about three domains of influence where he would like to have an impact. Right. One was the internet, one was energy technology, and one was space travel. And right. I mean, then this is like scary how how kind wow. of committed he was. I found old notes and emails and like interviewed all these people. And they're like, yeah, man, the only three things that he would talk to us about is the internet, energy, and space travel. And and part wow. of it is he he believed that those were going to be some of the things that were most important for humanity. So yeah. it was sort of where like science fiction met science reality. Like you could see a universe in which everything that he was saying would be true. The internet as a, as an information ecosystem that bound the world together, the mm. ability for us to actually like have unlimited energy or, or kind of improve the way energy is used. And then the idea of human beings as a multi-planetary civilization where we could live in other, on other planets. And he, he, I don't know how how, to, how else to say this. Those things can sound far fetched, but to a to somebody who like him had studied physics, mm, mm. they were very much physically possible. Meaning, it is mm. possible for those things to happen, and he felt that he could do something to push those realities along. Right. Mm. So I don't I don't I don't think of it as like a a kind of um. There are some founders I think who have sort of a, a messianic or like a kind of god complex thing, and I didn't spend a lot of time like psychoanalyzing. I was I spent time getting the facts. Like I was looking for notes and emails and facts, right? But what I would say is like weirdly, he's doing exactly what he said he would do, which is like pushing the boundaries on the internet, doing space exploration and revolutionizing the way energy is used in the automotive industry. And now I would say like with, with the Tesla roof and other things like in other places, yeah, yeah, it's not, I would say it's, this is like kind of eerily tracks with what he wanted to work on when he was a kid, right? He's yeah. just done it in fields where the rewards, the financial rewards are outsized, the impact on the public because cars are everywhere is outsized. Yeah. And I would argue that it's very hard to dispute the contributions that you know his companies have made in those domains like you know plenty of people may take issue with him but he actually like if if you speak to the engineers as i did who work around him they look up to him like they admire the scale of the ambition and they also admire that he takes the time to understand things technically and mm. there have been other by the way other people have written in other contexts like there were physicists who wrote that they would like, go for a meeting at spacex and inevitably like elon was always the best informed person about how physics would actually like work in a particular situation and i'm not saying that's necessarily always true mm. but i also think that like a lot of doubters and critics point to things that are either just totally false or just don't pass the smell test. Mm. And where, where I come at it from is I looked at like a, he wrote this essay that I found when he was like in his twenties for some like random book. And I found it and it literally says, this is like before SpaceX, it says like, what I want to do, like, what do I want to do? And I was, he was like, I want to see if I could help like do make man, man, mankind a multi-planetary civilization. And I interviewed people who said, yeah, when we would ask Elon, like, what's the goal that, what does he want to accomplish? He's like, I want to make mankind a multi-planetary civilization. And so in a way, yes, the goals are big and vast and, you know, seem like almost impossible, but mm. they are actually things that he has wanted to do for so long. And then he just applied himself over like a number of years to do that wow. thing. Mm. How has he evolved uh, in your history in your history journal over the period that you studied how have you now you've given those five um words, the words yeah i forced you to do that but I, I was keen because of course you know so much about him uh, otherwise there's so much to say right and people can read the book um and go into detail i want them to buy the book 
how has he evolved in your in your uh, assessment over the mm. course of the starts of his life to where you you cut it off? And maybe you can comment yeah. now as well. Yeah, no, I I would say that for my particular segment of his life, which again yeah. is sort of like let's say the mid '90s up to 2002, the yeah. only word that comes to mind is humbled. And the reason is because during the four years that I write about him, he gets thrown out of the company PayPal. He is all like he almost dies because of malaria and meningitis. He almost right. dies in a car accident and then he loses a son. Like he loses an infant son, like um, to SIDS, uh, sudden infant death syndrome. Oh, God. And so if you look at the four years that like we're like, it's a kind of, it's like the four years I'm writing about him are probably wow. the four worst years of his life, right? Mm -hmm. Like any one of those things is so hard, all four of them together. I mean, mm -hmm. to like be, be, you know, have all that happen. That like that. So I would say like at the end of 2002, 2003, he's like, he's humbled, you know I mean? He's still working. There's still like he, he buys the URL SpaceX. He still has the same ambitions, but you can't like, you, you sort of walk away from these experiences and you're like, wow, any one of those like would humble anybody. So mm -hmm. all four of them in sequence, one right after the other, that's what I would assess. Now, I think people would have a different assessment today. Yeah. I don't I don't follow super closely all the news that's coming out about him and Tesla and so it was just not my like that's not my reading material <laughs> like it's like if I'm if I have a few spare minutes that's not what I'm going to spend time reading about but I would argue that it's this chapter of his life that's often either misunderstood or entirely missing from the record people mm -hmm. don't understand they think he just like have he they think he emerged had billions of dollars and is launching rockets into space. <laughs> yes. That's like, really, I think that's what people think. And it's crazy. It's like the yeah. craziest thing to ignore the hard work that went into building the companies that Absolutely. grew to the point that he now has means and the ability to do things like buy Twitter or invest in various things. Like, it's just, I think we need to be more realistic about that and actually be honest about the fact that this is not someone that like woke up with a big pile of money and a bunch of rockets. Like it's like, and you would, you read to read some of the criticism mm. is to actually believe mm. that it's like, Oh, this terrible person who has a lot of money and a bunch of rockets. Like that's not at all what this story is. Right. Mm. And by the way, the way, you know, in some ways that this is not the story is that a bunch of the people who pushed him out of PayPal were also some of the biggest investors in SpaceX. Yeah. yeah. Right. So if you think about that, like, <clears throat> like they, they, they did not want him to be leader of their own company, but years later they invested a lot of money with him in SpaceX. Mm. Hmm. That is a that's an indication of the kind of entrepreneurial success he's had, of like the ability for Silicon Valley to like very quickly move on from things. I don't know. I just think it's a little bit of a misunderstood period in his life. Yeah, no, you're bang on. And thank you for educating us because it's so important to have that context and that personal story and the journey and, you know, all the traumas that he went through in four years. I mean, that's a, you know, in the world of karma that they would say sometimes you can neutralize or sort of uh, clean the karmic debt in a compressed period of time when a lot of stuff goes wrong, you know, and I've experienced that myself where a lot of things have gone wrong in a, in a space of time, which should have been when I was 60, not in my thirties or forties. Right. And I get it. And the humility, I think that is a very, very interesting word that you've used um, around Elon. Cause I think that's one of the things that I've never really seen him as a narcissist, although people say he's a narcissist, you know, God complex. I think he's just the person he is. He's obsessed mm -hmm. with, with where he wants to go in the direction he's headed in. Um, a few more things before we close off. Oh, by the way, can I, can I, can yeah. I say one point on that? Yeah, which please. Is and, and again, I know reasonable people will disagree, but there, there is an important point here. Like it does require 
a certain amount of whatever the opposite of humility is. Confidence, brio, chutzpah, arrogance, like whatever that word is. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a cocktail. Yeah. Yeah. If you were going to say that the biggest manufacturers of space technology have been doing it all wrong and costing the American taxpayer billions of dollars because they don't use reusable rockets. If you were going to point at them and say, you've been doing it wrong and I'm going to do it better, that does require a certain amount of, let's call it chutzpah. If you're going to look at Ford and GM, big automotive manufacturers that have been around for a very long time and are very well capitalized, if you're going to look at them and say, you know what? I know that electric cars can be made to work. And not just that, I know they could actually be made to work like as upmarket items that people will pay a lot of money for. Mm-hmm. You have to have a certain amount of, of like real kind of temerity to do that. Let me give you mm-hmm. an example of what I mean. This is sort of forgotten from the record. And I didn't write about this in the book, but I mm-hmm. found this research. Mm-hmm. When he was starting SpaceX, there's this wonderful catalog on the congressional website. You got to dig deep to get this. So no listener should do this because there's like better ways to spend your life, right? (laughs) But you can find a hearing, like the House and the Senate hosts these hearings on space technology. And this is very early days of SpaceX. This is like one of his first public comments about SpaceX. He is invited to testify next to people who are like big, big wigs in this space. Yeah, And he's basically pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. He's like saying like, why is the procurement process for the U.S. Congress run this way? It costs more money for these companies like Boeing and Raytheon, whoever else does this stuff, right? I don't even know. But like those companies, it costs them so much more money than it should cost. And I'm trying to do this with a startup so that we can do it on the cheap. And this is like in front of members of Congress. And you have somebody who is just simply stating facts like that it shouldn't, the procurement process shouldn't be this way, that it shouldn't be unfair. Mm. That requires the opposite of humility. So a startup entrepreneur probably, I mean, you'd be able to probably speak to this better than I can. You have to have enough chutzpah to to sort of say that a thing is wrong. Mm. And then also by the same token, have enough humility to learn so quickly that you can adjust and change things. And I, that's like actually one of the most interesting things about startup entrepreneurship to me. I'm not a startup entrepreneur, but the thing that I learned doing the founders is it is a very unique cocktail of like, like take on the world, win, blah, 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 you know, and like that sort of that kind of energy, as well yeah. as like, we have to learn and change really, really fast. And I have yeah. to be open and willing to turn to learning and changing really, really fast. Yeah, bang on. Um, and I think you, you've hit the nail on the head because I think those are the common traits of great entrepreneurs, right? And they keep going, they're obsessive. They do keep going and it's in them. It's like a burning energy. And it's not mm-hmm. about why well, I made my 50 million and, you know, that's it, or how many, 100 million. And that's fine for a while, but then they'll go off and do something else. It doesn't always have, it's not about money. It's not it's about- rarely. I would say with the best of the best, it's rarely about money. It's because, not, if it was, because if it was about money, they would have stopped years ago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, because it's not, worth the, the, it's not worth the headache to do all of this for 10 years fail, but if it's about the money, it's about something else. And as you've articulated, if you think about leadership, I just want to segue into leadership, if that's okay. It's a great conversation. And, um, you know, today's today's generation and the next few generations, you've got a child, I've got children as they grow up, they're, they're the Gen Alpha, and then you've got the Gen Z who have a different setup, they have a different way of looking at the world and so on. When you think of people like Elon Musk, and then, of course, let me not discount the other people you've got in the book, Peter Thiel and Lev Chin and various others, um, and you've got a nice diversity of people as well, may I add, you know, it's not just 
white Caucasian men, uh, you have women in there when, and a lot of people haven't featured some of the leaders. And I, in fact, before I go into leadership, I may ask you just to touch on some of the, the women leaders mm-hmm. that you've also featured because otherwise the conversation gets, you know, dominated by Mr. Musk. Yeah, no, there's a ton. Look, I mean, that's part of the 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 virtues of the of a project like this is that because I wasn't writing an article, I had all the room in the world to talk to everybody who worked at the company. Yeah. And perhaps unsurprisingly, you know, we have one portrait of who these people are, who's or what Silicon Valley is. And these companies tend to be like far more heterogeneous. So I interviewed, I mean, I I could go on like at some length, but I will give you an example. I interviewed somebody named Julie Anderson. And Julie was a very senior person at the company. She was like employee five at Elon's half of what became PayPal. Mm-hmm. And Julie basically like fixes their massive, massive, massive customer service problem almost single-handedly. Not, not single-handedly, but comes up with the concept and executes the idea that leads to the company being <clears throat> able to deal with a massive backlog of customer service requests. Right. And there is a kind of like, there's it, it is one of those ideas that again, it's like, you know, there's... It's met skeptically. Why would we base customer service in Omaha? Isn't Mm. that going to like, I don't know if that's going to work, but Mm. she had an instinct about it. She had a family contact there. She built a seed group of customer service reps. And to this day, Omaha is one of the biggest, is one of the biggest sort of um, office sites for PayPal. And, and it's one of the biggest employers in that region. Mm. And so I had a bunch of those stories, but more the, the sort of broader point is like, generally, you know, magazine articles or like online articles don't allow you to talk to 300 people and tell their stories. I had the ability to do that in the book. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Julie Anderson, you said? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's great. Thank you for that. And there are many, many other uh, leaders, oh, lots. diverse yeah. backgrounds in the book that I'm sure we'll pick up on. Going back to leadership then, you know, today's sort of diktat, you know, the 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 ideal framework for leadership is about servant leadership. It's about conscious capitalism and leaders who can understand that purpose should ideally come before profit, although that's not the case recently with Silicon Valley Bank. I was just reading an article that was depressing, which again, reiterates the fact that, you know, all of that stuff around, you know, purpose before profit, all of these are, you know, nice marketing terms. And it's depressing to hear that. I mean, as a podcast host, I interview a lot of people who've written books on this topic and they're emphatic and they have that belief, like startup founders like yourself, writing their books like, this is it, this is the way forward. Like Elon, they believe a new reality, a new paradigm will happen at some point. And then you start hearing these cases that remind you of 15 years ago, you know, what happened. So it's it's kind of um, a, a little bit disheartening. When you think of Elon's leadership style, in particular, I'm sticking with Elon for now. Uh, of course, he's he's a he's a mixed bag, isn't he? Really, he's a bit of a paella, you know. Or in in Hindi, we use this uh, we have this fantastic dish called a kitchri, which mm-hmm. is a, you know com- com- combination of many things, including some lentils right. and rice and everything else. He's a bit of a kitchri of of experiences, you know. Sometimes he can be the most inspirational, admirable leader. Other times, he feels like he's you know a dictator, and so. Yet, I think, as I was thinking about asking this question, as you described his journey, yet I think, well, this guy built businesses and he had people in them and they rallied around him and some would have left and he would have had attrition. Some would have stayed. Now there's a complaint about Tesla and, oh, Elon's horrible. So we leave. He's such a rude man and we leave. And then people come and people go, yet he's got to be a leader. He cannot just be an inventor like Mm -hmm. Nikolai Tesla. Right. right. He can't just be an inventor. He's a he is actually a leader, no matter what you say. Has anyone really figured out where he fits into the leadership category? Um, because I don't think he's one of those, let's pick up Elon Musk and let's put him there. 
I think he's he's so ambidextrous. He's able to shift mm-hmm. the gears based on the situation, which is so rare uh, compared to the traditional leaders that we've been taught about, you know, in the MBAs and all of the books that we've read. What are your views on Elon and leadership in the 21st century? Yeah, and I, and the the this is a really it's a really interesting question, and I think there's a bunch of different perspectives. And I I will yeah. say I think it depends on the company, you know. So you have to remember he's involved in so many different things, and the Correct. leadership yeah. style that works in one place isn't necessarily going to work in another. Yeah, SpaceX is a private company. Tesla is a public company. Twitter was a public company is now a private company. Mm. All these mm. you know, sort of there's like all these things that like you'd probably have to do the analysis based on the circumstances. I'll give you two kind of things that came out of my research for this specific period of his life, right. meaning x.com, PayPal, this period. Mm. One is the following. I heard from, I mean, it must have been at least a dozen, probably more people who were engineers, many of whom had never been interviewed before. And the thing that always stood out to them is that they had CEOs who like wore nice suits, but did not know how to write code. And then they had Elon, who didn't always like have the right clothes, but knew how to write code and was in the trenches with them solving technical problems. Mm. So I think one of the most important things to remember is that most of the commentary that you will read about him is not from technical people. Interesting. Because the technical people who are around him, A, they don't really like to talk to journalists to begin with, or talk to media or whatever, but mm. B, they'll give you a very different interpretation of who he is. And for these engineers, person after person, they would say, hey, and I mean, this is like from them. It's not even from me. They would say, what was inspiring was that he would roll up his sleeves, he would stay super late with us, and we would solve problems together. We would solve product challenges, we would solve issues in the code, et cetera, et cetera. Like he was there. That's what mattered. What mattered was not even that he was necessarily like the best engineer, but just that the CEO, the boss, the head of the company Mm. was willing to actually sit side by side and say, let's figure this out together, right? Mm. That Mm. is actually one of the things that he is very, very, very good at. It is servant leadership you won't hear about because engineers don't want to talk to the press. Mm. (laughs) Right? That's great, yeah. And by the way, this is like really important because you, it's like one of these things that's easily missed again, but I spoke to engineer after engineer and I was like, you know, what's cool. He's like, cause all of them were accustomed to big companies where the CEO wasn't going to do that. They weren't going to like roll up their sleeves and stay until two o'clock in the morning. Just didn't make any sense. They were really impressed that he did it. The second thing I would say is, and this is kind of a basic point, but it's a really important one. Um, I had a number of people particularly investors and others who said, you know, one of the things that his his superpower is sketching out a vision of what the future can be. And so storytelling, the idea of like a narrative framework for technology Mm. is actually a very important function. And let's say Mm. for some reason, somebody listening doesn't like Elon, fine. Mm. Let's focus on Steve Jobs. One of Steve Mm. Jobs' greatest gifts was the ability to sketch a future of the picture through stories, through relatable, you know, analogies yeah. and metaphors and like very tactile things that everybody could understand, mm. that quality is is a gift. It's also mm. a skill that can be developed. And it's one of the mm. things that I think people who I interviewed said that he mm. did exceptionally well. They said, you, when you have somebody who can paint a future like that, it gets investors excited. It makes it easier yeah. to recruit employees. 
It also makes it you set very big goals, like lofty goals that everybody feels like they're working toward. You're not like, here's an example. You're not eking out like one percentage point of improvement. You're trying to get mm-hmm. to Mars. <laughs> you know, like yeah, you're yeah. not you're not trying to like sell more cars this quarter. You are trying to electrify <laughs> the entire planet. Right. Um, yeah. And so I think there's like those two things, like the idea of like people miss that he's actually like an engineer at heart, that he enjoys that kind of problem solving, the small group startup problem solving. And the storytelling piece, those are the two qualities that, again, for my very limited project, that's what I observed. Mm, that's fantastic. So storytelling and getting into the trenches, which is mm-hmm. brilliant. By the way, getting into trenches is something that I think a lot of CEOs, in fact, when you read McKinsey's latest book, CEO Excellence, um, it's a brilliant book, one of the best books on CEO advice. And they looked at 67 CEOs and it's all fantastic. And they look at a whole series of mindsets. They call it mindsets. And I was thinking about Elon in those mindsets. I don't remember all of them, but there are many, six or seven different mindsets. Um, he, in those mindsets, I think this concept of getting into the trenches and being a native, being indigenous, is actually not really included in that because the CEOs they talk about mm. aren't much. Right. Oh, that's get interesting. In. I'm going to get in. Gonna roll up my sleeves right now. Gonna be with you. We'll, you know, we'll hang out together. We'll do this together. And then I'm out. Right. And then I've got to deal with another issue and I've got to inspire another crew. So it was almost like the parachute. It's like, you know, like the, the whole analogy of parenting, which you'll relate right, to. Right. Right. The parachute parent. I'm too busy doing stuff there. You know, go to private school. I pay for this. And then on the weekends, I'll take you for football right. Saturday. Like, surely that's good enough, kiddo. You know, and so. I love that analogy. Thank you for sharing that because I think people need to know that side of Elon. And I guess storytelling is a fundamental part of human um, uh, sort of collectivism. To to bring a collective together, anyone who's worth their weight in, in, in salt or whatever it may be is a great storyteller. And whether it's Mahatma Gandhi or it's Martin Luther King or it's President, ex-president Obama, or in fact, it is Elon Musk. And what I love about this bit is that he tells the story in his own way, in his sort of funny, sort of different, awkward way. It reminds me of the interview he did with uh, Jack Ma. I'm sure sure you've read everything and seen Mm -hmm. everything. But that weird interview with Jack Ma, which, and Jack Ma is a bit of a cool guy, but Jack Ma almost felt like that he wasn't he wasn't well in that interview, <laughs> you know, where he was just coming out with arbitrary statements, you know. Right. Uh, and and I think Elon was thinking, he's probably thinking, should I be on this stage or could I be right. could I be inventing something new? And so uh inc- incredible. We're coming to the end. I mean I could speak to you for hours. Do you think final couple of questions, do you think Elon could have done this if he wasn't in the United States? Oh, that's a great question. Um it's a great question. I think that it would have been challenging. And I think it, uh, well, here's the deal. It depends on what you're, what you're referring to when you say could have done this. Um, could have got I to think, this point in his journey. But with uh, all probably, the- yeah, probably not. Here's why. One, Silicon Valley in the 1990s is situated, I mean, it's very much an American export, right? It was sort of web, like the first generation of, of web technology, the exporting of that, web 2.0, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. The automotive industry also, I mean, I know it has like a big presence in Japan and China, but there, there's just so much about like the American automotive 
kind of field that makes it different. It would have been really hard in a, in a country where Toyota is sort of a, a, you know, a leading player for him to go and say, I'm going to start this new company and do a thing. It's also like venture capital just isn't mm. as mature in a lot of other markets as it is in the United States. There mm. is a, there is a maturity about venture capital funding in the United States that does not exist elsewhere and a size, like a scale yeah. space. I think a hundred percent, he could not have done anywhere other than America because of the history and legacy of NASA, because of, you know, it would have like, you can't go to Russia, <laughs> like you can't, you know, you're not gonna be able to do this in Russia. Um, and I think that there are, there's enough of a system of government because NASA and other private entities use space technology that's made by the private sector. There's a market there, right? So right. like, uh, like for logistics, for example, like, it, like really SpaceX is like a space logistics company, if I understand it correctly. And again, I didn't write about SpaceX, so I might have that wrong, mm. but that's much easier to get off the ground in the United States than it is elsewhere. I don't think, by the way, that that's necessarily going to always be true. I think these markets for investment capital and for startup formation are becoming much more interesting in other places. I have friends who work in Bangalore, for example, who are calling it like, they're like, hey, it's like walking around in Palo Alto in 1999, right? Like, that's what it feels like. Um, and I, by the way, I believe that. I mean, I think there's some really amazing things happening there and in India broadly. But I think that for this particular individual, America is a big part of his success story. And and I think he appreciates it. I mean, I don't know if he appreciates it, but I, I think most people appreciate that. But I also think it's because, look, it's like, you know, web technology, automotive engineering space. They kind of have a big home there when it comes to private capital, like being able to raise private capital and then being able to take companies public and sell companies. It's just America is a different beast. Mm. Nice. I like that. But I don't, but again, I don't, that's not a knock. Like it's like, I think that's going to change. I think that yeah. whole, that whole landscape is changing now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're going to see some interesting dynamics creep in versus the last 15 or 20 years that you've, you've covered and featured, but yeah, you, you put that very nicely. We come to the, the close only because we have to close it at some point, not because we want to. In fact, you know, you and I can chat about this for hours. Um, what a fantastic session we've had today and i've really thoroughly enjoyed it i've learned a lot we started right the way from the beginning on you your life mm -hmm. story we went into traits and behaviors of you writing a book and the best practices and what you learned and how you failed and how you succeeded in your tricks of the trade then we finally uh, went to elon we talked about his life story we talked about leadership we talked about diverse people in his life we talked about um, his vision for, you know, the three things, space, space travel, multi-planetary travel. You talked about the internet and um, you talked about energy and energy technology that he's been writing about for years. And then, you know, we ended up with the environment that has given him this huge advantage and kudos to the environment really and, and to him. And then we finally finished with you again, where you've summed this all up in a book as an American, an, an American Indian, I guess, or from in the Indian origin from Rajasthan, beautiful place, of course. And, uh, you know, great work. Really, really proud of what you've done. I'm honored to have you on the show. Before you go, uh, how do you feel about the experience over the last hour and a half, I think? Uh, with oh, my God. I mean, this with... was so fun. And I yeah. I will say also, it's like it's, I I appreciate that you understand that, that whether it's writing a book or doing a piece of art or becoming a parent or building a company, that a lot of the, 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 both the challenges and the joys are universal, right? Like we're, we talked about writing a book, but a lot of what we talked about is just like, 
transferable skills, habits, techniques, disciplines that people can carry into whatever they're doing. It's not even necessarily about writing the book. It's about the process of creating a new thing, right? And I think like human beings, that's what we do. Like we, we, ants aren't going to create new things like we are, right? I mean, or they're going to, but ant colonies aren't going to be fundamentally new. They're not going to be zero to one, right? And so I just enjoyed it so much. I mean, this is like the kind of conversation I, I think we could have talked for two more hours, right? Um, but I really appreciate it. And I appreciate what you're trying to do as well. Yeah, thank you so much. A real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Jimmy. And uh, stay in touch. We'd love to bring you back when you do decide to write the next book. And we'll 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 um, have you on the show for sure and keep in touch with you. And for the straight talkers out there, thank you for listening to the show. Click on the bottom right there. You'll see the notification uh, button and watch our shows. And we hope to see you very, very soon. This is Afman Hotra signing off. Jimmy Sonny, thank you so much for coming on the show. His book, Once More, The Founders, go buy it, central read. Look, even if you're not going to read the book, use it as a reference book. Use it as a reference book. Go to the chapters that really matter to you because not everyone can read 500 pages these days, right? Let's be honest. But those who want to use this in, you know, I have it in my collection. I'm now going to go through certain chapters, especially the one on my friend, Bill Frezer, and his wonderful son, who was a, who was a genius, uh, that you that's uh, pulled on my heartstrings. So, Jimmy, have a great week, a great um, day, a great year, and we wish you all the best and God bless. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you.